Previously on the Slavic Connection. So basically, they had wiretapped themselves, and so the recordings are them talking about all of these things. The wiretaps became known as bombs. Protests started happening, um, and it was really great. A lot of people came out. There was a lot of ethnic unity at the time. People. So that night, people came out with massive fervor and burned down his office. Um, was they filled balloons or random things with color, and they threw paint at the buildings. And so the protest movement got the nickname the Colorful Revolution. Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, and the belief was that this party needs to go. They've been in power 11 years. Um, it's the longest any political party has been in power in the country. You know, these people need to be charged for their crimes. Um, and we need to be able to move forward. Essentially, the country was in massive isolation because of this party on the international stage. And this is Ivanov? Or was Ivanov, he, yeah. Ivanov. Um, he was part of the Nationalist Party He as was well. part of the Nationalist Party as well. Um, and so the former prime minister, Nikola Gruevsky, he was the main leader of the party. His cousin was the secret police chief. Again, patronage networks work really great. <laughs> well, like a two-million-person country, <laughs> like, you know. Um, yeah, and so basically the Colorful Revolution went on throughout the summer of 2016, sparking massive, massive protests, uh, essentially in support of the special prosecutor's office and for elections. Finally, elections end up being held in December 11th, 2016. There was a lot of impact, like a lot of problems as to holding them. The electoral list hasn't been cleaned in the longest time. Um, there are 1.8 million eligible voters, um, which is Physically, almost yeah. <laughs> not possible. Um, and we haven't had a census, Macedonia like Sudan, um, since 2002. So we literally don't know how many people are in the country, how many people are citizens. We just don't have the data. And so that was a big point of like, who's going to vote? Because in some of the wiretap recordings and other things, we found out that people in a room this size, which is very small, that there were 65 people living here and voting. We found out that dead people were going to vote um, for this political party. Um, and so that's how they were essentially one of the mechanisms of being able to stay in power. So finally, they just agreed to have elections. Um, they take place on December 11th, 2016, and it is the closest election ever. Essentially, the ruling Nationalist Party wins. They get 51 seats in a 120-seat parliament. The main opposition, the Social Democrats that released the wiretaps, get 49. Mm -hmm. And then various ethnic Albanian parties receive the, the last 20%. But now, the Nationalists are supposed to form a government. But in the wiretaps, we heard how disgusting and vile they were saying about the Albanians. So their former ethnic Albanian partner, who also is super corrupt and whatnot, essentially it would have been political suicide for them to be in a coalition with this party again. So right. they refused. So it was the first time that the opposition, the Social Democrats, could actually form a government. Um, and at that point, they go into negotiations with the ethnic Albanian parties to form government. Uh, and what happens is the president, Ivanov, is now stalling. He's like, I need you to bring me signatures of all 61 people. Um, the former ruling party is now organizing its own protests against this new government taking place. They're very nationalist. Um, you know, the, at this time, the prime minister, Grivsky, comes out and says, 
These people are all led by George Soros. We need a sort of de-Sorosoization process, which literally actually begins. They start targeting NGOs that receive supposed funding from them and things Didn't like that. Didn't you personally get caught up in that saga a little bit? Un unfortunately, yes. I do, um, I do want to ask, where are you in all this? Yeah, please? yeah. The first time I was really active was the student protests because I was in college, a lot of these people were my peers, um, and so it was a nice way to show support. Um, I went um, at one point and protested with them. Um, I was there in 2015 during the I protest movement a little bit. Um, and then I mostly, I spent the summer of 2016 in Macedonia with people during the Colorful Revolution. Um, and that was really great. I mean, it was a nice experience. It was nice for a lot of us that live abroad to come back and sort of show support for people there that are trying to push for some kind of democratic change that was taking place um, in the country. Unfortunately, especially on social media, people get targeted a lot, um, whether from trolls, the government's troll factory or whoever. Um, and so I, like a lot of other people, have been targeted on social media. Um, I'm a sorcoid. I supposedly work for the CIA and USAID. <laughs> um, the sort of political discourse in the country was, if you're with the nationalists, you are a patriot. If you're mm -hmm. not, you are a traitor. So I was a traitor. You are wearing your I heart Soros shirt Yes, right now, I mean, so. it's great. Yeah. Um, and so that there's a big discourse about this and it takes place and it's really sad. I mean, the political discourse was so bad that family members wouldn't talk to each other if they were on opposing sides. It was really, really bad. Um, and social media was a big forefront in this. People, there was a lot of engagement on social media. Um, I had been personally blocked on social media by members of parliament and our former prime minister, um, which is unfortunate in the sense of I don't troll people. I just make an average post critiquing something. I critique the current government. Um, but yeah, I'm not allowed to comment on our former prime minister's Facebook page. I, I've been disabled from commenting. Um, and multiple MPs from that former party have blocked me on Twitter so that I cannot tweet at them or comment on whatever they tweet. So, and a lot of people, you know, have been impacted by this. It's not just me, obviously. Um, I'm literally a no one, um, <laughs> in this whole story. <laughs> and so it's just kind of super ironic. Um, but yeah. And during that time, during the elections, um, was a lot of this social media uproar was taking place. And so essentially the opposition came to an agreement with the Albanian parties to form government. But then the president was stipulating, oh, I can't give you the mandate yet. Essentially the ruling party was hosting protests and essentially trying to remain in power in any way that they could. Um, an unfortunate incident took place um, on April 27th, 2017. Um, at the end of the day, um, the former regime is still in power in parliament. Um, at the end of the day, the new majority that is led by the Social Democrats and the opposition and the Albanian parties wants to vote for a new speaker of parliament, which would initiate the process of the formation of a new government. So at the end of the day, they say, we're done with this bullshit. We're going to vote. And they literally vote by raising their hands in parliament to vote for Talat Jaferi, who is an ethnic Albanian, to be the first ethnic Albanian speaker of parliament. Multiple MPs, including the former speaker um, of parliament from the Nationalist Party, literally go to the door of parliament, open the door of parliament, and let a mob into parliament, which proceeds to beat and attempt to murder 
the people that are now supposed to come in power. So our new prime minister had his head gashed. The defense minister had her neck broken. One ethnic Albanian uh, MP was literally dragged bloodied on the floor of parliament and almost murdered. Um, and it took the special forces four hours to enter the building and prevent this. The nationalist controlled Yes. Forces. Essentially, people believe that the government just let these people in to beat the hell out of these guys and waited four hours before they went in. So they essentially blew a hole in the side of parliament and entered there to be able to extract these people out. Um, on that day, essentially the United Nations, the United, the United States, the European Union essentially said, we, le we legitimately recognize this new government that has now taken power based on this vote, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that's basically when this former party um, that had been in power for 11 years is now- Nepo's in charge? Or yes. Um, um, so now the Social Democrats led by Zoran Zaev um, are in charge. Um, and at that time, there was a lot of euphoria. A lot of people thought that this was huge, that now we're going to be able to go forward. Um, there was a lot of expectation. Um, after 11 years of whatever that was, um, now there is, you know, some new hope that people had. And a lot of people in the Colorful Revolution were hopeful. Um, that there was going to be a lot of change. People voted for the Social Democrats, even though they didn't like them. They historically also were corrupt back in the day. Um, people voted for them because it was a vote to change government for something new. They were able to get a lot of people that are sort of unaffiliated as sort of the base of these political parties to come out and vote for them. Um, and so people had a lot of expectations that things were going to change, that corrupt politicians were going to go to jail, um, that you know we were going to go towards the EU and NATO, that all these things were going to happen. Essentially, if I were to analyze now, um, basically almost three years of them being in power, it's been a flop. They devoted so much to foreign policy. We have you know, left this isolated place we were in and now we're more integrated. But they essentially focused on the name dispute, which is such a sensitive topic anyway, that essentially was really bad. Yeah. And they flopped on all the domestic fronts. The economy hasn't improved that much. The special prosecutor's office was struggling to um, prosecute people. So a lot of the base things that impact people's lives, the healthcare system, the education system, haven't changed. And so people now were in this new phase of disillusionment. And two big scandals that have led to this disillusionment is one, in November of last year, essentially, Gruevsky, the former prime minister, was supposed to finally go to jail. He had many cases against him because he was clearly the mastermind behind a lot of things. Um, in one case for the illegal purchase of a nice Mercedes car, um, he was supposed to serve two years in jail and the court verified, yes, you will serve two years in jail. This was illegal. The police on Friday is supposed to go get him from his house and take him to jail. Oh, he's not there. Then the police from the court seems to not work over the weekend. <laughs> so they're just not going to get him over the weekend. And then on Monday, they try looking and they don't know where he is. And then on Tuesday, he literally posts on Facebook and says, Hi, everyone. I'm in Budapest and I have applied for political asylum with the government in Hungary. People were livid. <laughs> I mean, it was like, this is the one guy that like, if you put this big fish in jail, you know, people will be happy. It's like a right. move forward for justice. People were livid. I mean, you let the guy get away. And... There's two, there's only two options for the government here. You either were so dumb that he got away on your watch or you were part of it and let him get away. Yeah. Um, and we still don't fully know what happened. Or you're incompetent. Yeah. Which 
Yeah, exactly. Both parts involved. Exactly. Um, and so there was a whole research done on how he escaped. Essentially, the Hungarian government from the Hungarian embassy helped him get to Albania, then to Montenegro, then to Serbia. Essentially, the Hungarians were also involved in his, you know, escorting out of the country and into Budapest. And then a couple of weeks later, his asylum case was expedited by the Hungarian government and he received political asylum. So he's now nicely enjoying, you know, all the great saunas and baths in Budapest uh, well, we're all left here feeling really <laughs> disillusioned. It's so about funny the, the nationalist leader has this like pan-European effort for him <laughs> yeah. to escape being charged <laughs> in his home country. There's something fitting about that. Yeah, that was a big that was a big bullet for the government. Um, and now there's been a new scandal that the whole country is essentially really reeling over um, and it basically is kind of the cherry on this ugly ugly cake that's been created um, over the past three years and that is that two people were arrested at the border um, one media mogul TV star and one businessman um, for essentially attempting to racketeer to extort someone uh, people thought oh this is interesting then it ended up being that the guy they were racketeering was a businessman who was under investigation by the special prosecutor's office. So people were like, oh, who's the prosecutor that was gonna lower his sentence? Cause that's why he was paying these guys money mm-hmm. for their supposed influence over a prosecutor to lower his sentence or not make him go to jail, essentially. Prevent him from being in jail. Um, and so people were speculating who it could be, you know, oh, this would be a big hit for the special prosecutor's office. Then an Italian right-wing daily newspaper publishes video and audio recording (laughs) of these people, these two guys carrying all this $1.5 million in a nice Louis Vuitton bag um, out of this businessman's house. So they clearly, there was something going on. Then in the audio recordings, you hear the voice of the chief special prosecutor. It's a woman, Katitsayaneva, essentially speaking with all of them And when the businessman that's trying to get his sentence lowered or prevent jail, you know, is worried about this, she basically goes, no, no, don't worry, everything will be okay. Um, And so people at this point basically go, this was the one institution, (laughs) I have, I own a shirt, I own a t-shirt that literally says special prosecutor's office, the acronym, with the photos of the three main ladies in charge, and it's been signed by all three ladies. (laughs) Essentially, People put so much faith. That's what the Colorful Revolution was about. People put faith in this institution to prosecute all these high-level corrupt people. And now we find out that one of them essentially was taking money to prevent a big fish, a big businessman, essentially one of the biggest oligarchs in the country, to prevent him from going to jail. And so people were super, super mad. And now basically the country's reeling through this latest scandal. Um, And a big problem of that is now people are disillusioned and apathy is returning. Mm. That's a big problem because essentially, I wrote this on Facebook, it took 30 years to get people to go out in the street and demand justice. And it literally took three years to fuck it all up. And now people will not go out in the street again because people will say, I spent four years protesting and what did I get? Mm -hmm. Nothing's changed. And even the people that we put our faith in seem to have betrayed us. And that inevitably leads to another nationalist leader probably taking charge. Yeah, I mean, the opposition, the former Nationalist Party, is calling for early elections. They are on a massive PR front going, look how corrupt this government is, look at all these problems, which 
I think feeds for their base. I mean, it makes sense. Their base still believes that like the wiretaps were not real. Their base essentially believes that like they were, you know, pushed out by foreign powers and George Soros, you know, paying all these protesters, which George Soros didn't pay me. And if he did, I still haven't got my money. <laughs> People were super pissed. Um, and so they're feeding to their base. But in reality, they haven't reformed themselves. There's nothing new about this party. They're essentially just towing this line. And that's really sad because at the end of the day, this political party basically, which is in all honesty, the second wealthiest political party in all of Europe, um, after Angela Merkel's CDU in Germany, um, essentially people are like, what are you doing with your money? Which is all illegal, illegally taken. Uh, they own random property in random places. These past three years, instead of taking the time while you're in opposition to reform yourself, to get rid of this terrible history of Gruevsky and, you know, all these wiretaps, they've done nothing but play with PR. The three guys that I see every day on their little PR images, wasting millions of dollars on some stupid, you know, photo crop pictures. Um, it's a waste, but they're, you know, pandering to their base. The Social Democrats, you had 11 years to literally reform yourself in opposition and you flopped. You know, you, we got nothing out of that. Um, and so now people are very apathetic again, or what I hope, I sincerely internally hope, but I'm also kind of apathetic at the moment, is that this could be a new beginning, a new moment where people might say, we need something new. For years, people have been talking about a third political party, a third option emerging on the stage. One has never been able to do that. Uh, maybe now out of all this apathy, people will go, all right, both sides have essentially flopped. Um, the establishment politics that have been going on for the past 30 years have not met the basic needs of basic people. We need to get more engaged and do something new. But I'm a bit skeptical on that being as a possibility. If you looked other places in the region, one that came to mind was Ukraine, where you have this comedian Zelensky. It seems to me that all it would take was just kind of a, you know, a public figure of some sort who could start mobilizing people in with charisma. But do you, is there a figure like that yeah, that could possibly I mean, emerge? I don't think right now. I don't think that there is such a figure. Um, I think. Um, there have been, there's a lot of small parties um, that do exist. A big problem actually in Macedonia is, I think it only happens in Macedonia. It's very weird. We essentially have pre-election coalitions. So instead of all the parties competing and then they form coalitions once they enter government, all these small parties tack on to either the Nationalist Party or the Social Democrats, um, and then you know get put on their lists mm -hmm. and then enter parliament that way, and then participate as separate parties when they're in there under this big party umbrella. None of those little parties have seemed to attract enough people. Some of them were started by big critics. Some of them were started by people that sort of you know branched off from these parties, but right now there isn't such a figure. There is no one that is able to to do that in, in a lot of ways. And a, a big other thing is people are, the apathy is really the main problem. People don't want to engage in politics. That was a big problem. That was a major success of the former regime actually was it made people apathetic. It fed off of that. It lived off of that in the sense of the more apathetic these people are, they're not coming out to vote. We remain in power and it works for us. We feed them the crumbs and they're excited about it because that's what they're worried about. They're worried about if you can put milk and bread on the table tomorrow. So we don't have a 
large segment of the population that actually thinks about a lot of political issues because they're so worried if tomorrow they're going to be able to put bread and milk on the table for their family. So they will do whatever is necessary to do that, whether that means becoming loyal to this political party or not. People used to pay the political parties in power to get a job in public administration. People would pay $3,000, you'd get a job in public administration to be able to make 300 euros a month, which is like a nice salary, and then hopefully pay that off and then support your family. And so in that whole environment, most people used to go, politica ne me interesa, which means politics doesn't interest me. And that's a very, very scary place to be. Um, because if people aren't interested in politics, people aren't interested in what's going on in their daily life, people don't get that politics impacts them every morning, every afternoon, when they go to the grocery store and they buy milk, that's politics. This is a big major way that we're gonna see a lot of the same problems reemerge essentially. We need to avoid the apathy, but how do we do that if there's no other political option out there that, that offers something? So it's a grim picture. I, it's unfortunately a grim picture that I'm painting, but at the end of the day, the grimmer the picture is, the more hope that something will also change. There's just literally just one more thing I wanted to ask. You just laid out this whole saga from 2014 to kind of the present day. It's concurrent with the migrant crisis, right, from the Middle East and Syria. Is Did any of that play a role in any of these events over this past, over these political events over the past, you know, five, yeah. six years? Yeah, I mean, just like all over Europe, we've essentially been seeing a lot of the nationalist groups um, essentially use the migrant crisis as this tool to get supporters. So in Macedonia, the former government essentially um, said that, oh, now the new government, they're going to build refugee camps for migrants in Macedonia, which is just not true. Um, I mean, we haven't seen these camps been built. All the migrants are essentially leaving Macedonia. They're all going to Germany. They're all going to France. No one wants to stay in Macedonia. Um, there was a very unfortunate moment where a migrant was interviewed in the south of Macedonia, and the migrant essentially was at the the reporter asked the migrant, would you be interested in staying in Macedonia? And he said, oh my God, no, these people are poorer than we are. Um, and so it was just this emblematic moment of, oh my God, holy shit, how embarrassing is that? Um, <laughs> and so people don't, these people don't want to stay here. They are just transiting through on their way to Germany. But it was a great way to exploit the political situation and use that as a sort of brownie point to, you know, scare people, fear them into voting for you again. At the end of the day, people should pay more attention to the Balkans and pay more attention to Macedonia and the things that are going on. Um, there's not a lot of scholars, a lot of researchers and a lot of reporters that talk about these issues and they're super fascinating. Every time I tell the story of what's been going on in Macedonia, people are like, oh my God, I didn't know that people were almost murdered in a parliament somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, it's an interesting story. It has a lot of lessons to offer us and I think people should you know, put more attention on it. Well, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks pleasure. for having me. The views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Hi everyone, my name is Katya. I am said a first year MA student here at Crease. My academic interests include small ethnic groups in Russia, uh, particularly indigenous groups. Uh, due to my own personal background, uh, my dad is from Yakutia, the Republic of Sakha Yakutia.
Well, that, that begs the question, what, what brings you down here to Texas then? Obviously the crease program, not the weather. You should have said the Slav connection. Uh, right, <laughs> yeah. excuse me, edit that out. <laughs> and you were walking us through the travel time to get to oh, where your father's from. Can yeah. you walk us through that again? Sure, so I grew up in the DC area, so I usually fly out of, uh, I fly out of DC, and then typically it's to Munich or Frankfurt, um, and that's about eight hours, I think. Um, I, I try to sleep as much as I can on the plane, so my time might be a little off from there, but um, from Germany, it's to Moscow, and that's six hours. And then from Moscow, we go to Yakutsk, that's another six hours, I think. No, it's not six hours from Germany to Moscow, that is way wrong, that's like three hours. Mm -hmm. um, Moscow to Yakutsk is like six hours, and then from Yakutsk, we go to this regional city called Suntar, and that is about three hours by plane, but it's on this tiny little Snoopy plane. So it has two propellers and the seat, there used to not ever be seat belts. Now there are these tiny little like rope seat belts. Um, it's gonna help you a lot. <laughs> right. Crashes. I just, you just gotta fall asleep and pray. Yeah. Um, and then from there, it's a three hour drive and then ferry ride to the small village where I end up. So what's worse, that travel time or like one day in the summer in Austin? Oh my gosh. 